0: Welcome to the Declaration Podcasts. Declaration is a festival exploring health and human rights that took place for the first time this year at the CCA in Glasgow from the 3rd to the 6th of March. The festival had 30 events, each one exploring an article in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Declaration is led by the Mental Health Foundation, NHS Health Scotland, the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland and the Centre for Health Policy at the University of Strathclyde. For more information, visit declarationfest.com. This podcast is from Article 6, right to recognition as a person before the law.
1: Okay, so hello, everybody. Um, Thank you very much for being here today for this uh, Declaration Festival event. Um, And for this one, we're going to be exploring Article 6, but I'll say more about that shortly. Um, Declaration is led by NHS Health Scotland, the Mental Health Foundation, uh, the Health and Social Care Alliance, which I realised my brother's policy officer for, and I had no idea they were involved. <laughs> uh, he's also not here. So, um, and the Centre for Health Policy at Strathclyde University. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be uh, hosting this panel this morning. Um, I'll introduce our speakers. Um, so, first of all, we have... Um, I'm just trying to think if I can make this bigger. I'll be able to shortly. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to first of all introduce uh, Jenny Kermode, who is chair of Transmedia Watch um, and is joining us this morning by the wonders of Skype. So, hello, Jenny. Okay, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the screen like you can see me, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and here with us, um, we also have Jane McAllen. That's correct. Um and they are particularly interested in access to healthcare and are a trainee medic, which is very impressive.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you see my face on my, my <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, So yeah, what I wanted to do to begin with uh, is to talk quite generally um, about non-binary gender recognition. Um, Um, I know there'll be people in the room that kind of are like, well, this is the life that I live, so I know all about it, Uh, but there also might be people who uh, thinking about non-binary gender is something very new, so I thought it'd be useful to make sure we're starting from a fairly level playing field. So I'm just going to hide the lovely Jenny uh, for a little while, uh, while I uh, run through this presentation. So, oh, problematic. Ah, Sorry.
2: This is what happens when you use a fancy format instead of Microsoft PowerPoint. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look, don't be impet crazy, okay? (laughs) Um, So, here we have it, Article 6. And Article 6 of the Declaration of Human Rights says everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Um, And so I wanted to use the opportunity of what Article 6 says um, to explore what recognition before the law means for, for uh, non-binary people. Um, often Article 6 is described as the right to have rights. It's thought of as the kind of basis upon which all other rights um, are built. Um, it's kind of a, a, a new thing to, to think about gender recognition um, as being founded on this, this right to be recognised before the law. Um, in the past and certainly when it was made it was much more about being um, entitled to citizenship Um, it often came from the fact that people were just um, disappeared in certain countries and you know um, then had no statehood and things like that But as things have developed and and human rights are obviously ever-evolving, I think it's now really pertinent to think about gender recognition in terms of this right to be recognised by the state. Um, Because, as I've said on the presentation, all the indicators that we now have as as personhood that flow from the state um, are linked to gender. Um, And also so many of the legal rights uh, that this article wants you to be able to access are also based on binary gender, so they're also based on either being male or female. Um, and just as as two examples, obviously we've got passports that have uh, your your gender or your your sex on, um, and obviously birth certificates as well. Um, so that's basically um, the the foundation on which I wanted to to think about this article. Is um, a brief? introduction to the gender binary um, the gender binary construct basically uh, in a nutshell says that there are male babies who have lovely little blue hats um, and female babies who have lovely pink hats and just look a little bit more angelic it looks it. Um, and from that flows if, um, if a baby is born um, and it's female there's an assumption made that that female baby will be a girl, um, that they will have feminine characteristics and they will grow up to identify as a woman. Um, And vice versa for male babies, um, it's presumed that they're boys, that they'll have masculine characteristics and they'll grow up to be men. Um, And that is is basically what everybody sort of presumes uh, the gender binary system is. Um, And if you're another baby, um, you get to wear an adorable <laughs> giraffe hat, which I think is the best part of this whole yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> <babies>. <laughs> but for for babies that are born outside of the gender binary and for whom um, the medical profession aren't sure whether to assign them male or female, then they're instantly thought of as outside that, that binary system. But because there's no... Um, there's no possibility of that happening in our society at the moment, then what happens most often is that people are just forced into one or other category, um, the one that people think they should be fitted into. Still love that hat, though.
2: Yeah,
1: good <laughs> um, So the gender binary is also based on a set of universal um inalienable facts that are neither universal or facts. (laughs) Uh, So I just wanted to to run through a few of those. So it's a fact that there are predominantly two different chromosomal configurations, XX and XY. However, it's not a fact that there are only two different chromosomal configurations um, because we know that some people are born with XXY um, or a whole variety of different... And you'll know more about this in I, I do. I uh, Please do, absolutely.
2: Uh, just an interesting point about chromosomal variations. We tend to assume that any biological variation between our assigned categories of male and female would present with major symptoms, so it would be a medical issue, whereas there's actually many chromosomal variations which present with either no symptoms whatsoever or just the only symptom would be infertility, which means that because chromosomal testing isn't a part of most standard medical procedures, many people could have chromosomal variations from the XXXY and just never find out. This is particularly true if they don't ever try to have children, because then they would never potentially discover that they are infertile and they would never follow the main symptom up. Um, This is actually quite common, so it's thought that I can't remember quite exactly which chromosome variation, but one of them, I think it might be XYY, but don't quote me on that. One <laughs> of them is thought to be one in every 1,000 assigned male at birth births. So obviously that's quite actually quite common, um, and that has no symptoms at all. So you know, people may well never find out that they have that variation. So just an interesting aside about how this system works. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Clear <laughs> indication of how... Mm -hmm. not a fact it is (laughs) (laughs) that there are only XY and XX people and obviously when babies are born no one looks, you know, tests their chromosomes or whatever, it's literally a quick swatch down below Uh, like, okay Uh, and then, you know, a decision is made
2: and suddenly the colour of your bedroom walls Yeah, exactly,
1: it's set forever (laughs) Yeah (laughs) Um, So it's Uh, It's a fact that these chromosomal differences lead our bodies uh, to be shaped in ways that can predominantly be classed into two different categories. Um, However, it's not a fact that our chromosomes lead our bodies to be shaped in ways that can only be classed into two different categories, Um, because people are born with all sorts of variations in the way that their genitals look or the way that their um, bodies are configured um, that mean that... they they can't be neatly classified into what we would traditionally call a male body or a female body.
2: It's also just really very complicated how all of these different aspects of biological sex interact with each other. So we kind of assume that your XX or XY chromosomes have very concrete and measurable effects, whereas actually there are a lot of different genes which impact how your chromosomes alter your sex or how your chromosomes interact with your hormone levels, and how your hormone levels then impact upon your ex- like expressed characteristics. So it's actually really complicated, and we don't know that much about what constitutes um, or what influences the development of various specific sexual characteristics like body hair. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what I'm saying is it's complicated, so it doesn't make sense. So it makes sense. When
1: I <laughs> exactly it's all (laughs) it's
2: all messy it's all messy
1: um so it's a fact that some people have vaginas and some people have penises um but it's not a fact that people with vaginas are women and people with penises are men obviously some people with those things are those things um but it's not always the case um did you want to say something
2: no i'm just nodding with agreement excellent (laughs) um
1: it's a fact that to carry a child, you need to have a uterus, currently. I don't know. Things might change. Um, but it's not a fact to carry a child, you need to be a woman. Um, because we know now that um, trans men uh, who identify as men might still have a uterus and might go on to give birth. Um, and a lot of trans men have had children. Um, although the media would have us believe that it's only been, like, two people and there was, like, massive media coverage. There's plenty uh, trans men who have children.
2: And loads of non-binary people who can also have children who may not, because of the existing categories only being male and female, may not even be picked up on by maternity services as not being cisgender women, but are still trans, non-binary people who are having children. Exactly.
1: Um, It's a fact. That you can tell what kind of genitals someone has. Oh no, that's in the wrong. That's in the wrong one. Oh my goodness, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> okay, it's not a fact. Fundamentally, not a fact. <laughs> you can tell what kind of genitals a person has by looking at. It. I'm dyslexic. Okay, sometimes I do things in the opposite way. <laughs> it's,
2: it's intentional to break the tension. So yeah, ask, exactly. Uh, Asking questions.
1: Moving really quickly onto the non-facts. <laughs> Oh, no, no,
2: I'm so confused
1: now. (laughs) Okay, so it's a fact, it is a fact, that you can tell what kind of genitals someone has by asking them what kind of genitals they have. Yes. That is the only fact there. Um, (laughs) However, I don't advise doing this unless you're... (laughs) It's a very specific set of circumstances. This has happened to me on quite a few occasions, um, once at a wedding... Uh, which was delightful for everybody. It wasn't during the bow story. Um, so that's just a very um, brief and obviously quite surface uh, takedown of the gender binary, but it, it, it's a good basis on which to start. Um, so I just briefly want to look at the
3: impact
1: of our current gender binary system has on Everybody else, apart from non-binary people, because the the rest of the discussion is going to focus specifically on, on non-binary people. But actually, it's not just us that are affected by the gender binary system. Um, it's oppressive to a whole host of people. So, oh, I just wanted to have... Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm skipping ahead of myself. First of all, there's a delightful picture of me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a way to, um, as an example, to show how ridiculous um trying to classify people is and trying to work out what gender someone has by looking at them um i thought i'd use myself as an example um so Depending on what I'm wearing on a given day, um, I tend to think that my face looks quite feminine. Um, I've got really long eyelashes. Um, <laughs> i just big myself up. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in this photo, uh, I'm wearing makeup, so I think I have quite a feminine face. So, if someone just had a quick look at my face, they might think, "Oh, that—that that, you know, I might assign that person female." Um, However, I also have <laughs> amazing abs.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not my body, obviously, just in case you wonder. Um but yeah, so I've got what would usually be described as a masculine um looking uh, torso. Um and so if someone just just saw that part of me they would probably assign me male. Um I don't have a penis. <laughs> I couldn't find a nice uh, yeah.
3: Google picture
1: way to describe that, so I did a little drawing. Yeah, but, uh, I'm, quite, I'm quite proud of. Like color thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so if someone was just thinking about my genitals... <laughs> <laughs> Hope people aren't doing that too often. Um, but was, <laughs> everyone is now, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> um, so someone was just thinking in terms of genitalia and trying to force me into a category they they might go uh with female. Um however I've got body hair. Uh I could, for some reason, I couldn't find a pair of legs <laughs> facing forward.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
2: maybe it's very
1: stigmatised to have hairy knees. It might, maybe I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Again, if someone was just thinking of um, like how hairy I was, they would like, oh, that's quite a masculine characteristic. Um, <clears throat> I currently have male on uh, my birth certificate, although that wasn't the uh, sex on my birth certificate when I was born. Um, so that means that, that generally in life um, I'm, I'm classified as male. Um, but my pronouns are they and them, um, which is a gender-neutral pronoun. Um, so basically, taking all of that in a nutshell, um, there are so many parts of being non-binary that are contradictory and people with different characteristics that it just becomes a totally fruitless and thankless task to try um, and assign someone uh, a gender within our current system. Um However, even though it can be extremely awkward for both the person trying to do it and the non-binary person, people continue to feel like they have to do that. Um, And I think that's something that will hopefully break down over time. But clearly, when there are only two options, that that makes that much more likely to happen. I just have a little sip of water. Is there anything? Oh, thank you. Feel free to add anything while I'm sipping my water.
2: Mm-hmm. I feel like I should say something now. I, the only thing that I'm thinking about, if you all want to hear my thoughts, is it's important to note that there can be quite a lot of discrepancy in the different bits of classification. So Nathan's already pointed out that you can have a lot of different uh, physical characteristics which would be understood to represent various gender. But it's also it's easier to change your legal gender on your passport than it is on your birth certificate. So you can be in a situation where you are legally male in some context and legally female <coughs> in others. Which isn't ideal, and also I'm not even sure what the legal situation is there. Whether you're legally, whether that's actually technically allowed or not, it just is something that happens. So it's it's complicated and not ideal.
1: Yeah, your legal gender flows from your from your birth certificate, but like you say, you can still access a passport mm-hmm. um, in in another gender. So yeah, you you have this confused situation, um, yes, and
2: also it costs a lot of money to update all of these documents and to get. So to update your passport is 75 quid to update your birth certificate it's I think 150 quid-ish. Yeah, so that. people don't have the money to do all of these things at the same time even if they would want to so that's not ideal either.
1: Yeah and actually um, but for loads of, loads of trans people are in that situation um, of having different documents with different um, gender markers and, and sometimes different names as well depending on um, what they've been able to access so so yeah, absolutely. Sorry, can I, can I ask? Yeah, of course.
4: The, just so I check my understanding correctly, are you saying that on your birth certificate it uh, identifies
1: you as female? On oh, my birth certificate, yeah. personally? yeah, there's no one? Um, yeah, yeah, my original birth certificate when I was born, uh, I was assigned female, uh, but now it says male.
2: The way that it works is that you can apply for a certificate which allows you to change your legal gender marker on your oh. birth certificate, and then your original birth certificate, I think instead of being destroyed, it's put behind like a government firewall, so technically, theoretically... Nobody should be able to access it. And then you're issued with an updated birth certificate, which you should be able to use in all contexts. Mm-hmm. There are kind of problems with this. For example, the fact that the you have to apply for a gender certificate through a specific process means there's essentially a list of everyone in the UK who has been certified as transgender behind some government firewall. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about everyone here, but the government <laughs> are not my closest allies that I trust very well. So it's not perfect. Um, but theoretically, nobody should be able to access your... Original birth certificate, all the information on it, without your consent. Okay. In practice, that does happen. Yeah. And now you, and now you
1: align with so, on your
4: current birth certificate, then yeah. it says male.
1: But do you align with? with no, no, that's just story. what happens. So you to make a
4: choice? Yeah. In essence, on that. Yeah. And that feels like the closest. Uh, the closest it was in relation to the two choices. Um,
1: the when I changed my, when I changed my birth certificate, mm-hmm. um, male felt like, like the right choice for me to have a member certificate I identified at that point very strongly as male and so that was the the right thing but it's just over time my gender identity is is developed and changed as it does for you know plenty of people throughout their lives if Um, you were forced to choose what would you choose well I can't I can't choose yeah there's no choice for me to make now because I've got male on my birth certificate so the only option would be go to go back to female which I absolutely wouldn't want to do but in
4: relation to your own personal identity what would you what would you say
3: regardless of the government, you will be
2: bound... I mean, ideally, there would be more options it's yeah. male or female. So, ideally... Well, I mean, I think... I don't know for you, and I obviously I can speak for myself, but I personally, I would like to not have to list my gender on legal mm-hmm. documents like that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there would be a lot of value in having an unspecified and or other category. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's why I prefer as well, like, X or other mm-hmm. or whatever.
2: But... Uh, it's important to bear in mind that there can be other factors in choosing your legal gender. So if you're somebody who is um, perceived or recognised by other people as male, regardless of your internal gender or how you actually identify yourself, you could be putting yourself at risk if your marker on your passport is different to how the border guards will perceive you. So we already know that there's an unprofessional level of interest in transgender bodies. So for example, there are statistics which show that in the UK... Um, a considerably and scary number of trans people feel like their doctors have examined their genitals when that wasn't medically relevant or appropriate. So we already know that there's an unprofessional level of fetishization of trans bodies and genitals. I would not feel if I knew that everybody recognised me as male, I would not be comfortable having a female on my passport because then I just I would get strip searched at all the airports, wouldn't I? Um, and this is actually a big issue for um, we are advocating and campaigning for a third category or an unspecified on your passport. But even though that was how I internally identify myself, if I'm going to transition and look male, I'll still choose male on my passport because otherwise I'm outing myself as transgender or non-binary and or intersex at airports regardless of who I actually am. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So it's not as simple as just, oh, well, we want to be on our passports who we actually are. It's a case of how can you balance up your own identification in a world which is transphobic and which can put you at risk if you are outing yourself as trans. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd probably keep <coughs> mail on my passport as well yeah. for that reason just to make travel travel easier. Is
4: there an argument against just removing legal
1: gender? Yeah, the
2: government there made is, a statement. But,
1: yeah, the government kind of...
2: ...that said that there are important social and legal consequences to a person's gender. What those are we have yet to work out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely there's definitely an argument. For that
2: there there are some important aspects of having legal gender so for example we still live in a world which is significantly patriarchal if you remove all gender monitoring we are no longer to monitor things like the wage gap or equal opportunities so that would be a problem the answer is that we need to have a more inclusive and more representative monitoring of gender as opposed to having this two categories which by necessity doesn't account for transgender populations but removing it altogether doesn't feel like a good answer because, well, I'd, I'd also, like, to not experience sexism, which we need monitoring for. Does that make sense, yeah? I think um, as,
1: as well it's difficult. Um, I can understand that actually for a lot of trans people... Um, they're really keen to, to keep mm-hmm. gender on their birth certificate or passport um, because the, the um, legitimacy of their gender identity can sometimes be so undermined by society that it means so much to them to have male on their passports or female on their passports so they can say, look, you have to treat me in this way, regardless mm-hmm. of how you think I look. I am yeah. legally female, so you must treat me that way.
2: As well as that, I think it's very easy to go from oh, we want non-binary representation to oh, gender is a bad thing. Yeah, we're not saying that gender is a bad thing. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a woman, and there's nothing wrong with being a man. <coughs> it's, it would be very problematic to suggest that there was. So, the the dream for me, at least, is not to remove gender. Totally, it's to recognize other people's genders. Yeah,
1: I totally agree. Good. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> That's good, right? <laughs> 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 um, okay, so. Back to the slide that I was talking about a while ago. The impact on other people, um, not on binary people. <laughs> what are the double negatives? Um, okay, so the impact of gender binary system on cis women. Um, at the moment, um, because there's only two genders... I've got, oh, I'm so sorry. Yep. Yeah.
4: Sorry, for folk in the room that don't know
1: what cis means. I'm so sorry, yes, thank you very much for asking that question. Um, cis means uh, not trans, um, so someone who um, is
2: uh, if you designated some, like, as
1: female and identifies as female in a woman would be cis.
2: Some kind of rough definitions is for transgender where it referred to anybody whose gender at some point throughout their life is not the same as the gender they were assigned at birth. And for cisgender, it's someone whose gender throughout their life is the same as the gender they were assigned at birth. What does it
0: stand for? Is
2: it like short for something? Sorry. Cisgender. It, it's just it's short for cisgender, but the words come from a scientific context. So in molecular science, trans, it refers to a molecule where um, half of the molecule switches over to the other half of the molecule, okay. and cis refers to a molecule where the two parts are the same side. Okay. So they're not great terms if you yeah. like go into the etymology, but they're what we've got. Um,
1: yeah. Um. And- and p- people tend to, like, cis instead of not trans is because it's not it's setting othering. one of the uh, the default or othering.
2: Um, if you yeah. have trans people and normal people... Yes, <laughs> it it's not using <laughs> that normal yeah. You plus. need to have labels for everyone, otherwise the people who don't have a label become the default. And it can be very othering for trans people if not being trans is the default.
1: Totally. That was beautifully explained.
2: I'm just writing an essay on this right now. So I'm <laughs> on <it>. Like... Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, so yeah, I, I really strongly think that with there only being two recognized, um, genders technically, you know, at the moment, um, one is always going to be, like, have higher status. I think when you've got two or something like that, it's so difficult for them to be completely equal. Um, and clearly from so much patriarchy, <laughs> we know that women are still treated as the inferior gender. Um women tend to have their uh, gender expression policed by society um, because of this gender binary. Um, and also so so many assumptions and expectations flow from the way in which you're, you're gendered. Um, so women still tend to get um, expectations placed on them about the roles they'll fulfill and the characteristics they'll have. Um, and these are all very oppressive.
2: A lot of these oppressive roles are very specifically linked to sexual characteristics that are perceived to be part of a woman's characteristics. Yeah, totally. So for like, example, gentleman. there's a huge amount of pressure on women to have children. <laughs> which relies on this idea that if you are ident- if you're a woman, if your gender and your lived experience of gender is as a woman, you're necessarily gonna have a uterus, you're necessarily gonna be able to get pregnant using that uterus, and you're necessarily gonna want to get pregnant. So there's quite and a then lot look of look after the
1: baby and quit your work yes. and
2: Oh, but also, if you put in work, you'll be stigmatised. So yeah, you can't it's... you can't win.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
2: <laughs> does this make sense? So a lot of these gender roles are intrinsically linked into this system of assuming that biological specific sexual characteristics align with your legal gender and align with your gender experience in a, the con- appropriate way. Yeah.
1: Good. <laughs> um, so on children, <coughs> um, they are very heavily. Uh, funneled into into one category. Um, like you see from the baby pictures, it starts as soon as a baby's born with the way they're dressed and things. Um, so they get told what they can and can't wear. They get told what they should and shouldn't play with. Um, they're obsessively policed by often their family and wider society. Um, and again, limits are placed on them in terms of what they will do in the future by you know what sex someone expects that they're going to be. Um, Binary trans people are obviously very strongly affected by the gender binary um, because the system is thought of as uh, an inalienable fact. Um, As soon as anybody questions that that system in in crossing that divide, of course they're they're very uh, quickly stigmatised. And because we expect certain things of... A uh, female or a male body, a lot of trans people who, who do identify with a binary gender are still expected to have a body that uh, aligns with that gender, even if that's not what they want.
2: The essential kind of approach is that if you are a man, so if you're a trans man <coughs> or a gender man, I'm going to be start So the general assumption is that if you're a man, you're necessarily going to want to be as close to a cisgender man as possible. So if you present the health services as a transgender man, the available medical interventions are all oriented to trying to ensure that your body is as close to a cisgender man as possible. So they're designed to do things like increase your body hair, um, make your voice deeper. There are potential surgical interventions to create a phallus out of your vulva. All of the interventions are operating under the assumption that if you're a man, you're necessarily going to want to be like a cisgender man. It conveys quite well, I think, the idea that cisgender is still default. So when we talk about a man's body, what we're usually referring to is a cisgender man's body, right? Despite the fact that cisgender men and transgender men are both equally male in terms of their lived experience of gender. I'm very angry with the healthcare system. You might notice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... On intersex people, um, so they are often experienced non-consensual normalising surgeries. So, if a baby's born um, and their genitals, for example, um, don't look like what the medical profession expect either male or female genitals to look like, um, they will often be operated on um, to to make them look make them look more normal, um, and then flowing from that, they're then often. Uh, or can be raised um, as a gender that doesn't r- reflect how they actually identify, um, and again, that's because there's only two options. So parents often feel well, we need to pick one to give this child the best chance, um, and then that might not turn out to be the right the right choice. Well,
0: that's due to stigma as well, isn't it? You know, we can't have this kid going through school
2: and when, when the gender fluid, and we don't know what you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here. Like, I think that. Uh, All of these surgeries that can be performed on intersex infants, the idea is normalization with Mm. massive quotation marks. And that's very evident because often these surgeries intervene on bodies which are medically fine, medically healthy. So people who may be fertile, completely able to enjoy sex, um, completely able to go to the bathroom by themselves as adults, obviously not as children. And then these medical interventions are carried out, which means that somebody is no longer uh, able to use the bathroom independently, no longer has any sexual sensation or function, often is made infertile. So it's literally creating medical problems out of a desire to normalise someone. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because, in reality, obviously, if you did have a child who was not assigned male or female in a world where everyone else is, that does create issues for that child. But there's a big gap between assigning someone male and female and carrying out non-consensual genital surgeries. There's definitely a middle ground where you can give that child more space to express their own gender as an older child, to (coughs) choose for themselves what interventions they would like at puberty or in adulthood, While still raising them in either the legal category of male or female, which would have to happen anyway, because every human being in the UK is either male or female, regardless of gender or biological features. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Um, so on <coughs> lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer people, um, our relationships are seen as not as abnormal because if they're seen that there's two um, two genders, um, they're based on uh, biological characteristics. Um, there is an expectation that people will mate with the opposite gender because there's only two genders Um, and so a great deal of um, uh, homophobia um, is based upon that Um, and usually if you look at um, homophobic slurs um, they're actually often much more based upon the fact that someone is transgressing gender norms rather than the fact, rather than who they're sleeping with so it tends to be you know, a guy getting called a fag or a poof, and it's not actually because he has sex with another man, it's because he's effeminate. Um, Or if a lesbian is called dyke or butch or whatever in an offensive way, again, it's not actually that she sleeps with women. People might not even know that or be interested in that. It's the way that she looks more masculine than society would expect.
2: I think these things are inherently linked together, because if you are a man who has sex with another man, that is seen as innately feminising despite the fact that, well, I mean, there's considerably more masculinity into men having sex than a heterosexual relationship, so they don't understand why it would be (laughs) feminising. But that is perceived as automatically feminising you, so the gender is inseparable from the actual being uh, LGB, right?
0: But then again, there's the whole thing of, in Greek uh, Greek times, they would actually get people that uh, that fought together to have sex with each other, thinking it would actually build a stronger bond between
2: the two. Fighters. Mm. Sounds accurate to me, but also I feel like that's probably not the only time when. So just have had a lot of sex. <laughs> but yeah. They're <laughs> so usually just more ashamed of it or quiet about it, I think. But yeah, it's totally, a good point. Totally, totally. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about a history of male bonding, I can talk about this.
1: Like, <laughs> That's um, for another time. <laughs>
2: before I was a medic, I did critical studies, so I'm like, on this stuff. <laughs> um,
1: so on on cis men, um, the system, they're they're still uh, continues to be the privileged gender. But it does have negative impacts as well. The gender expression is really strongly policed, Um, and it seems the media don't seem to be such uh, policers as they are of women. However, uh, between uh, peers, there seems to still be a lot of gender policing. Um, When you see groups of men out, there's often, you know, a lot of ribbing and things like that. If someone in any way acts outside of or transgresses what. This, you know, masculinity that they expect. And again, they're still expected to fulfil certain roles um, to be strong, to be the supporter of the family and all of these things. And again, that's based on masculine characteristics um, getting attributed to maleness. Um Can I just ask a question about to um,
3: the intersex thing? What what goes on someone's birth
2: certificate if they're Male and female so everyone in the UK is legally classified male or female within a few weeks of birth. Mm-hmm. This happens regardless of biological variations. I guess the important thing to note is that somebody so intersex variations are quite common. So if somebody has an intersex variation in one sexual characteristic, it's unlikely they will also have intersex variations in all of the other sexual characteristics. So your biological sex is a collection of features. It's your hormones, chromosomes, secondary sex characteristics like body hair. Uh, what have I said already? Hormones, growth. external genitalia, and internal anatomy, and your role in reproduction, so whether or not you can get pregnant. So, all of these things contribute to your biological sex. You may have an intersex variation in one, or two, or three of them, but you're unlikely to have intersex variations in all of them. So, theoretically, a legal gender should be assigned based on the other features that are not intersex variations. Does that make sense? Sort of. Uh, uh. Um, but what yeah, would obviously when a, a baby's born, you don't know about the other stuff, the yeah. stuff that you can't see. So, are you basing it purely on what, like the external genitalia? That what you're, historically is,
1: Yeah, but if um, because you have to have male or female, a choice just has to be made. So, even if it's very difficult to identify, um, what
2: Some people are kind of in between on it. Sort of. Well historically, the cutoff used to be 1.3 centimetres, so if you had a little phallus that was shorter than 1.3 oh, centimetres, yeah. it would be a clitoris, and if it was longer than 1.2 centimetres, it would be a penis, and then resulting surgical interventions would reinforce that assignment. Mm-hmm. That's, we don't really have much evidence about any of it, but that's probably not still the case, because now you do can do things like chromosome testing. Mm-hmm. But it is, it often does just result in basically uh, tossing a coin, and there's quite a lot of studies available about people who have been um, had intersex variations of birth and had uh, legal genders r- kind of randomly assigned and then had quite significant impacts on their future well-being because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is quite, it's quite quite—it's quite rare for there to be the situation where somebody really cannot be um, classified as either male or female because it is actually very unlikely to have somebody who's genitals are, like, flat bang in the middle. That's just not really how it tends to work. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's also, it's even rarer to have that and also not have chromosomes that tend to be one way or the other, not in terms of being XX or XY, but in terms of being closer to XX and XY. <laughs> so they would do, like, a chromosome test Yeah, well, Yeah. Like, yeah. If, it was, if there really was difficulty.
1: So it's basically p- building a picture of characteristics mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, does this person have, this child have more male and more female characteristics and, mm-hmm. and taking a punt, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is important to say that Plenty of intersex people will be assigned either male or female and absolutely identify as that. Um, and so, you know, identify as cisgender. Um, but there are people that aren't, and when they aren't, it can have, you know, huge consequences. Um, I'm just realizing the time is marked. <coughs> it's good. It's
2: good stuff.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, so, just lastly, I want to look at who's benefiting from the gender binary system. So, I've got the winning and losing. Is that how you spell losing?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah okay yeah. Oh, good. well done me <laughs> uh, so
1: the losing side it's not side. How you wedding, though. what? yeah it
0: is it's got two yeah. ends oh, that is it is it's not two, two ends All oh, no. right.
3: okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't <look> right don't <laughs> 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 look when you look at words too much they <laughs> always look wrong whining.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so on
1: the winning side <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. on, the, on oh, the
1: losing side we've got be, uh, yeah. binary <laughs> trans people non-binary people obviously uh, cis women LGBTQ people most cis men and intersex people and children um, <laughs> but winning <laughs> we've got some men who want to make sure that everyone performs the roles they're supposed to have sex with who they're supposed to and express themselves in the ways <laughs> they're supposed to because this c- system keeps them in a position of privilege
2: most of these people are white by the way <laughs> yes also <laughs> just an important side point
1: and middle class mm,
2: mm-hmm. so
1: these are the winners in this system mm. Um, um, I
2: think the other thing the people who sort of win out of this would be things like the government because yeah, especially absolutely. now that we have this system in order to switch to legal recognition to non-binary people people essentially will have to go through all of the law books and update them so the, gender, the language is gender neutral the government see this as a massive task while that is partly true, it's also important to note out that we've already done this because the language in the like the legal language switched from yeah. using he to using he slash she quite recently. Mm-hmm. So there is a precedent for changing the legislation. But yeah, people like the government and the NHS who already operate on this binary system benefit from it being continued. Yeah. A little.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's yeah, a main yeah. system of control, really. Yeah.
0: Can yeah. I ask about the Q, queer? I yeah. just
1: thought that was a derogatory term. Yeah, it's one of those terms that has been reappropriated. So often, um, queer was used as a slur against people who were perceived to be um, gay or to have a you know a different sexual orientation from what people would expect. Um, or gender identity. Or gender identity, yeah, absolutely. But it's actually come to be um, used by a lot of people who. Um, don't feel that their sexual orientation can really be described as heterosexual or lesbian or gay or bisexual Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and that queer more fully explains their experience and I think of it most because if you, especially if you're non-binary you can't say that you're attracted to people the same as you or different from you in terms of gender always because what does that mean exactly, do you know what I mean? So I feel that describing myself as gay would be inaccurate because to me that says um, like a man who has sex with men. For me that's how I generally gay is perceived um, and queer tends to be a much more political identity as well um, it's much more about transgressing all sorts of social norms rather than just you know sort of sexu- sexuality.
2: Mm-hmm. It tends to be, so yeah I agree with Nathan in that it is. it has a very oppressive history and it has been there have been movements to reclaim it more recently, particularly within younger LGBT plus communities and within groups who, as Nathan said, situate their LGBT plus identity very firmly within their political identity. Um, but I think as well it is important to point out that it does have that oppressive history, so you probably shouldn't refer to people as it if you don't know that's how they identify. Uh-huh. Um, so I would never go to somebody and go, oh, you're, you're queer, right? Because that it can still cause that offence. But <laughs> yeah, it, it is very popular among people our age, I think especially political people our age.
0: It strikes me as, as as people using it who obviously don't know what people are identifying as, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a fear. They're different from me. Yeah.
2: That's yeah. how it's always... I think this goes. is part of why it's been reclaimed. Like, I, I personally love the word queer, and part of that is because, for me, it's important to point out that actually, I think, the way that non-binary, b- bisexual people... At- 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 approach things like attraction the way that we classify attraction is very different to how heteronormativity classifies attraction Mm -hmm. so i think maintaining that idea that actually we are not hoping to be them Mm -hmm. (laughs) is quite important to many people but obviously that's not universal and it's it feeds into a very complicated and controversial area that we shouldn't get into too much because i think we both have strong opinions (laughs) um but yeah i think it can partly be a reaction to the increasing representation of cisgender middle class white gay men over everyone else in the LGBT plus community, so... Totally.
1: Um, okay, so that was a really brief introduction, uh, to... <laughs> to non-binary ness. Um, I'm, I'm really keen now to, uh, bring Jenny into the discussion, so just give me two seconds to sort out the Skype. Oh, there you are. Lovely. Um, okay, so... I'm going to full screen you. Beautiful. Okay.
5: Um,
1: yeah, so, um... I think it'd be really useful to go on to talk about um, what it means to be non-binary uh, and and trans as well because obviously, as I said, binary trans people are affected by the gender binary um, in sort of everyday life in society and um, Jenny's got particular experience of how the media um, deal with, with trans and non-binary people so if you want to have that input, Jenny, that would be fabby.
5: I would just say um initially I am one of those other category people but I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my teens, so unfortunately I missed out on my giraffe hat.
2: we'll um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, get you one for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> a little
5: up there. Um but yes, I work with the, the media um with Transmedia Watch, which is an organization that campaigns for um transgender and intersex people to be treated with accuracy, dignity and respect. We do a lot of proactive work with the media. We don't just want to be Another complaints organisation were interested in making a more direct difference. So uh, two years ago we put together a special project um, on non-binary people. We've worked. We've done a series of interviews with people about being non-binary about the way that they felt because we although I'm non-binary myself, um, I understand that, that no one person can understand everybody's experience of it and it's very important to to talk to a lot of people to understand these things. Um, so after doing that research, we put together a resource for the media, and we circulated that as widely as we could. Um, and we've been in a lot of conversations with journalists. Um, we've talked to the major broadcasting channels and to major newspapers and a lot of individuals um, about the existence of non-binary people, about how to treat us respectfully, um, and about you know our experiences, the, the kind of things that we encounter in the world. Um other people have been doing other work around these issues at the same time. And we're very pleased to say that the, the media has really picked up over the past couple of years. There's a lot more coverage now of stories about non-binary people than there used to be. Now, before we discuss sort of the, the way these stories work, I'd like to say that it's really important that they're there at all. Because we find that people who don't feel that they have any representation, any role models out there, really, really struggle and are far more likely to have psychiatric issues more likely to have issues with confidence generally about how they handle themselves in the world. And also a lot of people don't figure out that they're non-binary straight away. It might sound an odd thing if your experience of gender is is such a huge part of your life, but you don't really have a label for it. It's something that we used to find with binary trans people, that a lot of binary trans people will come out, some still are coming out in their 40s, 50s or older than that, because although they felt this way all their lives they didn't know that that's what it was they didn't know how to to approach resolving some of their issues and feel better about themselves and for non-binary people that's something that's even more acute people may feel that they never fitted in as male or female but assume that they're just doing it wrong that there's something wrong with them and and not realize that that actually there are a lot of people who feel the same way and that that's okay um with the the media we've worked on not only visibility but also obviously on respecting people in these cases because early coverage of non-binary people before these efforts tended to be very sensationalist um, a lot of people were given, the feedback we got from the general public was that being a binary person was okay, they could understand to some extent the horror of being trapped in the wrong body, which of, of course is not how a lot of primary trans people see themselves anyway, but the, the whole idea that somebody's a, a poor, beautiful, as like a fairy trapped in the body of a builder. was, a, <laughs> the, the And in that landscape, uh, non-binary people tended to be brought out as uh, the strange and difficult people, so that when members of the public were sympathetic to that, they'd say, well, you know, we we could go so far, but we can't really make room for people who want to be really difficult and demand extra, you know, extra protections, new categories for everything and so on. So it's been really difficult uh, to get past that, but it's been important to get to a point where the media just now recognizes that we exist and stops asking us to to fit into either one box or the other and stops treating us as freaks, but just says, you know, there are a lot of people out there like this. And every time a story like this appears in the press, which is almost daily now, we hear from people who say, well, I've never really felt male, or I've never really felt female, but I didn't know what to call myself. You know, some of those people are not necessarily going to end up calling themselves non-binary. They're not necessarily going to, to feel that that's really much closer to the way they are, but they understand that there's a spectrum to these things they don't have to be at one extreme or another and again again just that, that that's okay so the media is really really important to this kind of cultural change Um there was an article recently by melody phillips um who said that we are sort of you know evil people out here trying to persuade the world that everybody's gender fluid um mm-hmm. now not only is that only one way of experiencing being non-binary but it's nonsense you've never said that people you know lots of people as nathan said are, are happily male or happily female all we want is to say look you know let's make room for people who are not um and within that space we want to say that you know people will express that in different ways and that that they should be you know there are specific identities within that should be respected um basically you know they think of Opening up that space for non-binary people can potentially get rid of a lot of other sexism um, and we we hope that the media is going to keep moving forward on this. We find because of this effect where the more stories there are out there, the more people come out, that it's getting easier and easier for people to start coming out, you know, that it's uh, something that that keeps rolling and we keep seeing larger and larger numbers of non-binary people talking about who they are and how they understand themselves. Um, but the other interesting thing is that there have always been some non-binary people who have been outspoken about it in the media, some quite well-known people, it's not just people like, say, Ruby Rose who have become famous um, whilst using those terms for themselves, but also people like, say, Tilda Swinton or Richard O'Brien or Morrissey who have always talked about having these identities but have just, you know, the world has gone on talking about them as if they had the genders yeah. that they were assigned yeah. and and it's strange that these people, they're starting to be more visible in the media as who they are, but a lot of people still don't recognise this. And so they think that it's something vanishingly unusual. And actually, it's always been there, right in front of them. And we're hoping that more media coverage will make that more visible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To pick up on that point, Jenny, like, I was thinking about you know the impact of, of living as a non-binary person. And, and there's this weird contradiction of of being completely visible and completely invisible at the same time, it feels like. Because mm-hmm. if you're non-binary, you if you're non-binary, you don't really have a chance, uh, you don't really have a choice but to be to be out, you know? If you're telling people I don't identify as male and female, you don't have a choice to not be out as trans. Okay. But at the same mm-hmm. time, because people don't realise that non-binary exists, everyone that looks at you just assigns you either to male or female. Mm-hmm. So then I you're think that invisible. I interesting
5: in, in my own experiences. I... And I used to be quite muscular, so although i was really short, I was treated as certainly as far more androgynous or as far more masculine. Um, and then I developed muscle wasting disease, and the more fragile I've looked, the more people have assumed feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily that they have a different idea about what they read my sex as, but the way that they assume like, I, I identify my own gender has changed. And that's something, you know, I can't do anything about being disabled. Um, it's a very strange experience. But it tells us something also about how people still see women as weak.
1: Yeah, mm. absolutely. It, yeah, I actually noticed that, because uh, I use a wheelchair sometimes, that I tend to, if I'm using my wheelchair, I tend to get, m- I'm more likely to be gendered as female than, than when I'm not. It's just really, yeah, it, it's strange and
3: interesting is, phenomenon. Like... <laughs> hmm.
1: Sorry. Yeah, Yeah. "Hmm, that is embarrassing. We should do a study. (laughs) Yeah, we should get some
2: evidence. (laughs) Um, I think it relies on this premise that non-binary people can essentially be subsumed under this binary category. This is also how the NHS has decided to deal with the existence of trans people. So as we have already pointed out the NHS is built on this same male and female system, which assumes that your legal gender accurately represents your gender experience, which accurately corresponds in the correct way to various specific features the way that they decided to deal with trans people is to accept that sometimes the lived experience of gender does not correspond to these biological features and thus intervene to drag these things into alignment. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But the same thing is being done to non-binary people. So it's assumed that if you're non-binary, okay, yeah, gender's complicated, but essentially you're still binary, right? Whereas actually I think for many non-binary people it's actually literally impossible yeah. to pick. Like, um, it, It's in the same way that it's assumed that we will all feel more comfortable in either women's or men's bathrooms and it's just a matter of enabling safety so you can use which one you're more comfortable in. But I think for non-binary people, you can stand outside a women's and men's bathroom and literally not feel more comfortable in either of them because that system doesn't work for you. <coughs> Does this make sense? It's also yeah, like...
5: Yeah, sorry, it's particularly but, problematic for, for intersex people because a lot of intersex people... If you've got a different set of hormones from the ones that people expect due to the shape of your body and that kind of thing, then you have different risks as far as disease and things like that are concerned. Um, For instance, you might be gendered female, but you might be in a male category as far as certain disease risks are concerned. And because of the binary system in the NHS, that's overlooked a lot of the time. So people don't get the checks that they should be getting. They don't get the health support that they need. And it's not that intersex people are necessarily ill a lot more than other people, but they're more likely to develop serious problems because they're less likely to get appropriate treatment yeah you
2: know, same yeah the, absolutely the absolutely.
1: absolutely
2: yeah so this is um, actually a massive issue within the NHS so as I've said multiple times now the NHS relies on male and female being stable categories. That means all of the health services the NHS provide are based on male and female categories. so a good example is cervical screening. Cervical screening, everyone who has a cervix, theoretically, is entitled to having screenings quite regularly to ensure they aren't developing kind of pre-cancerous symptoms. Um, These screenings are really important, they're a really important way to detect cancer, people who have cervixes should go for them if they possibly can, but... They're not sent, the notifications are not sent out to everyone that has a cervix. They're sent out to everybody who is listed as F on the system. Mm. This means that lots of people who, for example, are trans men, so have retained a cervix but are listed as M, do not get these notifications. So they miss out on a screening opportunity just because they are transgender. And that's binary trans people. So non-binary people are not counted for in the system at all. It also negatively impacts cis people, because if you are a cisgender woman who has had her uterus removed you are suddenly getting all of these notifications saying, oh, you have a cervix, right? Which can really reinforce the distress that you might experience through things like dealing with infertility or dealing with having to have your uterus removed. Do you see why this makes sense? It means that people are missing out on opportunities because the NHS is assuming that having an F accurately conveys whether or not you have a cervix. And this is true in all of the services that we provide. So another really good example is um, in terms of donating blood. So there are differences between... um, Your blood, if you are in a body which is kind of driven by testosterone, than if you have the blood of somebody whose body is driven by estrogens, right? So basically, your hormone levels impact the uh, constituents of your blood, which means that the NHS, when they're taking, I mean, the NHS don't technically do our blood drives, but the people who take the blood, um, they should really need to know what kind of hormone system you have. So to find out, they ask whether you're male or female, Mm -hmm. or they assume it based on the presentation that you were giving across. Clearly, these two things correspond. You may have, as Jenny pointed out, you can have uh, hormone variations that do not correspond to your sexual, seco- secondary sexual characteristics. You could be a trans man who passes very well as a cisgender man, so you're recognised as male, who doesn't have high testosterone levels. These things are much more confusing and complicated, which means that the NHS system doesn't even work for the NHS because they're getting blood. <laughs> which they're assuming has certain chemical constituents which may not have those constituents. And non-binary people are not provided for any services at all, which means that we just don't access healthcare. Um, there are no specific and non-binary targeted services. We have no statistics for the um, disease prevalence within non-binary communities. As Jenny said, very little statistics on disease prevalence in intersex communities, because our entire system relies on stable male-female categories which, by definition, exclude these populations.
1: So accessing... Um any sex specific services mm-hmm. as a non-binary person becomes incredibly difficult um, and accessing um, sexual health services is just a, a horrible. It's like, I mean it's a really difficult experience for, for any trans person but particularly if you're non-binary the idea of having to go somewhere where right away you're funneled into uh, a different a different category is just Horrible. And I know so many people, people that know that they need to get screened and, you know, it's in their best interest to, who just won't because it's just too horrible an experience.
2: And this is on an institutional level before we even get into the major issues of a complete lack of awareness among all health professionals. Do you know? So this is the institutional issues before we even get into the um, knock-on effect on actual health professionals. So there's massive transphobia among health professionals, which is partly related to the fact that the health system as an institution does not account, it perceives as if trans people and intersex people just don't exist. Um, Can I
4: just offer a slight caveat to to some of that? Um, Just from a perspective that I I actually work within the NHS and I work in gender services and I work with young people who have gender issues and... We're very open to hearing about young people's experiences of of non-binary, and I'd probably say that over the past 12 months, in the region of maybe 20% of the young people that we have coming into the service would potentially identify as non-binary, and I think some of the discourse that young people hear, both within community settings and, and on the internet, about... Services not being accepting of non-binary can sometimes be a barrier to working with mm-hmm. those young people because they come into services with, with a point of view that they need to present as being binary, in order to access services. And actually, that's not the case. We we would rather that young people tell us about their experience of non-binary, uh, and it's a multitude of experience. Mm-hmm. So it's a learning curve for for everyone. I agree that about what you say that uh, in general the NHS is, is set up very much as a binary but I think some of the specialist services that work with young trans people are very open to binary experience and about treating young people as an individual and mm-hmm. about hearing about their particular experience of gender but sometimes yeah. feel that, that sometimes they come into the service with, with the, the kind of view that they need to present as binary and that, could, that can be a bit problematic. I think
2: this is yeah. um, very. This is very refreshing to hear, first of all, and I think it conveys something about how quickly the situation is changing. So, even in the last year or two years, a lot of the kind of official overarching documents about providing trans healthcare has shifted towards being more non-binary inclusive, which is great. However, I think the general situation for all trans people under the NHS is still that um, we feel very desperate to get these very important treatments like hormone therapy and even the best-case scenario is that you've got a year-long waiting list before your first appointment, that you're probably being assessed by people who are not transgender, and that there's a gap between um, the medical profession in general and what's happening in trans communities, even in terms of language, and also between the official guidelines for the clinical practice and what actual clinicians are doing. Obviously, this is because change is a process, but I do think that it's very difficult if you're a non-binary person and you have lots of friends who have honest stories of having very negative experiences, which do exist, to then go into this service, and it feels a bit like a gamble if you are open about being non-binary because you know that even if that won't, it may, and it has for other non-binary people, removed their access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? So it's very good that you're able to treat non-binary people, but it... the cycle of change is a very complicated one
4: yeah I I think in general but I think that there's an issue about resources within our own service we've doubled in size in the last 12 months having gone from 650 referrals last year to over 1300 this year uh, but we've not had a a doubling of resources Mm -hmm. Uh, in the waiting list general within our services that young people are seen within 18 weeks in the main Uh, we're slightly missing that target now because of these huge increases in referrals uh, but I think that, that the, um, in, in general, just going back to, to, to that point about about treating people as an individual mm-hmm. uh, is the key to it really because no two people's experience of gender is a sign and I think that we are more than happy to listen to an individual's experience of gender Yeah, Yeah. No,
2: I agree. I think this is great. But I I think that these issues are not unrelated. So the fact that there's not been a doubling of resources is related to the fact that under the NHS MS system, non-binary people don't exist. So everything in the NHS has to be evidence based. It's meant to protect against bias within the services we provide, right? So without statistical evidence, which we can hold up and say this is non-binary people situation, it's very difficult to enable the NHS to provide services to non-binary people. While non-binary people don't have legal recognition, it's very hard to get research about non-binary people. Yeah. So it all perpetuates into this cycle. Um,
1: and something we were talking about earlier, because we we're, we're saying, you know, sometimes it can feel difficult to explain the kind of tangible difficulties that you can have on a day-to-day basis when you live as non-binary. Um, but then, actually, there, we can see, like, that things could fundamentally change and that everything could mm-hmm. be different. And so if the government do introduce a third gender category, straight away, every single service is going to have to think about the existence of people that are yeah. male or female. And it's going to have to change all the systems within the NHS in terms of screening and all those ki- kinds of things. Um so it will have a fundamental impact. Yeah, it on immediately
2: puts trans issues on the agenda. Yeah. Like immediately all health professionals have to be aware of non-binary people. Um,
3: sorry, yes at the back. I don't think this will happen, what you have just said, and um, I'm, I'm not pessimist, I'm just realist um, th- that would cost a lot of money, and very regretfully in the UK it is very important what is cost effective, so i i I wish that would happen for um, um, binary people for you know any other gender people. I also think that when we go, for example, to the NHS when we complete any sort of application form, um, instead of only fa- male female, they should be other genders too. Why not binary people why not? If I am not female, if I am not male, what am I to take? That doesn't exist, and okay. it should have. And uh, yes, the government should change the policies, and you know, and to legalise this. But that w- that would mean to change the whole system. That would mean mm-hmm. uh, the need of a lot of money, and that means they will not do
1: it. I'm actually I'm quite optimistic that they will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think evidence has shown in other countries things are moving really quickly on this. Australia now has a third gender category. Now that's a massive and also very conservative politically conservative at the moment country that has introduced a third gender category and are having to go through all this Mm -hmm. New Zealand has got third gender category passports, Nepal has gone has got a third gender category India has got a third gender category Um, so actually I think I think there is a lot of movement towards this Parliamentary
4: parliamentary Yeah exactly, uh, the government have
1: just
2: said The NHS are undergoing a legal inquiry about not Meeting their ex- um, requirements to trans people under the Equality Act, so it's not even necessarily a case of whether they can afford it. It's a yes, case of legally being obligated to. under international law to recognise that non-binary people exist. Uh, at the back, with the hand up here.
4: Given that uh, any, NHS Scotland is devolved, could you speak up a little? Sorry. Sorry. Given that NHS Scotland is devolved. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Would it be a strategy, perhaps, to focus on, um, in, in, it, it's particularly because it's sort of an emergency situation, essentially, um, to focus on pressuring uh, the NHS in Scotland? Yeah. To move
1: yeah. I mean, we're, put
2: then, it bluntly, we're pressuring everyone. Yeah, yes. but no, but then. <laughs> like we're pressuring you right now. <laughs> if you get that,
1: right? No, <laughs> no, you're
4: right. But the, as far as kind of shunting Westminster might be a harder, mm-hmm. longer battle. Yeah. R- whereas shunting kind of NS Scotland, because it's devolved, might be a bit, bit of an easier one. Yeah,
1: there are two there are two gender recognition campaigns going on at the moment, one in Scotland and one for the whole of the UK. Um, today uh, the Scottish Transgender Alliance who are leading the equal recognition campaign in Scotland are at the Scottish Greens Conference. Um and the I just saw a tweet yesterday that they got Ruth Davidson who's um, leader of the Conservative Party to sign up to the campaign. Um, so gender recognition itself is devolved. So it's not even just the healthcare system. We're actually lobbying the Scottish Parliament to introduce third gender recognition. So we could get the point to the point where you can have on your birth certificate an X. But if the UK government haven't done anything about it, you can't get that on your passport, Um, which is a whole other complexity. But yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right.
2: It's also a little complicated with the healthcare provision of gender services because there aren't that many... People providing it, which means that it's actually quite a linked-up area of healthcare. So quite often, trans people from Scotland will be going to England for things like surgical interventions, mm-hmm. just because there's nobody in Scotland who is willing or able to provide them. So it's it's a little bit more linked-up than many of our devolved healthcare issues. Just as an aside,
4: there's also the issue that on on the NHS central spine, where gender is is generally recorded, when that's changed uh, for young person in that system, it can actually take a long time for that to kind of dissipate out to other services that they might be involved in Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be in hospitals or dental services, it can take months if not years actually uh, because some of those other systems that tie into the NHS spine system are updated so infrequently Uh, and if a young person Sometimes when they change their name on the system, they're given a new NHS yeah. number. Mm. Therefore, mm. the NHS number that they are allocated doesn't match up to what the pass records are when somebody goes to update their system. Yeah. So it's a bit of a mess.
3: Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, it's just a, in general, the, com- the computer system for the NHS is not the most up-to-date computer system anyway. And there's a lot of change happening within healthcare at the moment anyway because of things like the privatisation of the English NHS or the pre-privatisation depending mm-hmm. on your political leanings um, and how that is impacting on Scotland and updates from paper records to electrical records. It's kind of a big transitional period for the NHS anyway. But this change with regards to non-binary people, this is happening whether the NHS wants to keep up or not. So, for example, the use of a gender neutral title as opposed to Mr or Miss or Miss is becoming more and more widespread, essentially on a daily basis. The Student um, Funding Association for Scotland have just updated all their letters so they don't have he or she anymore, they just have they. This is happening. The question isn't whether or not this is going to happen. The question is whether or not the NHS is going to be on the right side of the change. Do you know?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I do, I totally agree with that. I don't think it's a matter of if the government moves to being there being a third gender recognition. I think it is when, because I think there's such... Uh, an impetus now for change that it's just it is going to be it's going to happen
2: also because this is isn't a vanishingly small minority so it's estimated that non-binary people will be one in every 250 people this is about the same as the occurrence of anorexia in women so it's as common for women to have anorexia as it is for individuals to be non-binary in the uk we all, we talk about disordered eating a lot in the health professional because it's clearly quite a common problem we can no longer continue to proceed as if trans people don't exist. Intersex variations are estimated to be... The most recent estimation in Nature, one of the big journals, was that one in every 100 people has some sort of, sort of intersex variation. It is not the case that this is a vanishing minority. This is, it's the case that this is a very common thing that the NHS has to start recognising that it exists, and so does the government.
1: Um, I'm aware it's ten past one. People are probably quite peckish. I know what I am because I've only had a scone. It was delicious. Um, well, it's
2: the scones are good. Yeah. Um,
1: does anybody have any questions before we finish off that they want to put out there? I I I think it's all down to education, and um, and
0: it's all down to starting education in in well from in primary school essentially. I think. Um, And just about how to recognise people and let people be who they are and about acceptance and about just, you know, be yourself because you can't be anybody else and and about accepting yourself and about accepting other people. And I think there's a lot of prejudice in older people. Um, They'll all die. (laughs) 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> my, my parents, for example I grew up, my parents shouted at the TV Oh, be, everybody would be forced to be gay at one point And I was thinking, oh my god, what, what are you all about? Um, so that generation They're in their 70s now So that generation will go And I think
1: that uh, Not too quickly <laughs> the well, I know, I
0: know, but, but Do you know what I mean? That prejudice, I think, will die with them So I think there's a lot of um, it's going to get a lot better.
1: No, I do agree um, that it has to start young.
0: Education um. and a teaching
2: acceptance and letting everybody, you know, be yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: On that note, the Scottish Transgender Alliance provides transgender and intersex training, so if anyone works in an organisation that you think would benefit from me talking for another two hours, uh, come up and ask us and get my email address. The training is offered for free. It's excellent training because I, I train. I, do the, I deliver it. Deliver it. Uh, and I can just give you my email address and we can talk about stuff. So... Um, sorry I wanted to put it in no a, a thank you the, 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 oh you've got to plug yourself
1: um, <laughs> so I just need to say the closing spiel <laughs> so thank you very much for coming um, thank you so much for uh, to Jay for being here and for Jenny to be here and for your excellent uh, contributions thank you to everybody for being so open uh, to, to listening um, But thank you most of all to Declaration Festival and to Andrew for inviting us here today it's been a brilliant opportunity There's lots more happening throughout the weekend, so check out the programmes that are in the lobby. And, yeah, have a good day. Thank you very much.